Welcome to the Hills Church Podcast. Hills Church is a four-square church in Laguna Hills, California. Visit us on the web at hillschurchoc.com. We are continuing this series that's going to take us all through the summer on the book of Acts. You know, um, a lot of times, uh, much like happens in the course of our lives, our memories are made up of this accumulation of like really great moments and really horrible moments filled in the gaps with all of these odd little tiny memories that you don't know why that one stuck, but it becomes part of the story of who we are. Those stories become the our, our story. They create the context for understanding who we are and for why we are the way that we are. And the book of Acts is like that as well. This sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the author of both the the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, kind of this two-part sequel, kind of like Rocky 1 and Rocky 791. Um, uh, Have you guys seen that one? Rocky back as a zombie. He's part of the Walking Dead, and uh, Apollo Creed comes back from the dead, and... uh, he actually, we could go, sorry, it's, it's easy to get sidetracked on vacation Sunday, right? Crowd's a little smaller today, I'm feeling a little looser today, um, so uh, just give me a little bit of, of space, I'll try not to, to go there, Ty will make sure that I don't on behalf of Jamie. Um, this, uh, this two-part story, when we start to read it, think of the book of Acts as part of our story. It's part of our story because history helps, to, helps us to understand of how we got here and of why we do what we do. And the book of Acts, too, is filled with these incredible high moments, these incredible challenging moments, and these odd little stories in between that when woven through begin to describe this thing that we call, this thing that we call church. In fact, since the very beginning, um, the church has gathered on Sunday morning for the exact kind of same thing that we do today. For prayer, for fellowship, for instruction in God's word. Now, some of you would say, "Well, Jeff, weren't most of those people like Jewish and don't didn't like didn't they go to church on like Saturday or something like that?" And yes, those things were true. But in in response to allowing, um, you know how sometimes you do things in life, you create these rituals in your life to remind you of something. And the church began to gather in addition on Sundays because tradition says that Sunday is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And you can imagine if we're only within a month or two of Jesus' resurrection, as they continue to gather on that day just to kind of remember, and then as more people from outside the inner circle began to get included 
Sunday became the day in which they would gather together for fellowship and for worship and for the instruction of the word. And so we begin to see why we do what we do as this thing called the church or the called out ones. In these first few chapters, we begin to look at what a community of people are committed to. We start to see how they make sure that each other's needs are being met. And the most interesting thing is, is that when they begin to live this way, the scripture says that their lives individually and the life that they shared together was full of grace and favor. Last week, we began the journey, though, to talk about how, how we, as people, began to muck this thing up a little bit. How our self-centeredness, how our, our penchant for comparison begins to bring inherent problems. We kind of, one of the terms we use here at Hills Church is it begins to dirty the water a little bit. It begins to, um, uh, even, even having consequences that were not anticipated, but nevertheless begin to take place. Last week we looked at um, probably one of every pastor's favorite sermons to, to, to teach, which is about Ananias and Sapphira and how when you don't pay your bill to God, you die. Um, that is like a, that's like a recipe for church growth, right? Hey, everybody, let's, let's just preach that every week, right? But what we found to be true as a principle for our lives is this, and you may want to write this down if you weren't here last week, but one of the principles that we walk through with the story of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter 5 is this, is that wherever you hold back from God what is his, something dies. Many of us wonder why maybe the dreams and the passions, the desires that God's put in our hearts for our lives, why haven't those things come to pass? Some of it may be an issue of timing. Some of it may be an issue of process of the things that God is doing in our lives. But some of us, I think, require a little bit of introspection and say, has it not come to life yet because I've not fully given everything to the Lord that I said I was going to give. Would you write this thought down? Because this is important to remember as we walk through not only the book of Acts, but also in our own lives. Is that there is no separating the power of God from the holiness of God. Because what was really violated in that journey was the holiness of God. And, you know, it is appropriate at times to actually put a W in front of the word holiness because when the concept of holiness does have to do not just with our otherness, but with our completeness. So many times in the church we talk about like, man, I just want to be in a be in a church where, um, where, where God is moving. So many times I've heard, um, I've heard, uh, um, I, you know, my, my son and, uh, is 23, my daughter's 21, and they're like, 
man, dad, if only we could go back and kind of see the things that happened in the, in the book of Acts. Man, it was just so amazing. I go, oh, it was totally amazing. And then what happens is we'll have people die then who don't live up to that standard. Right now, all of a sudden, wait, whoa, uh, I'm glad that we are now in the age of grace, right? Um, so last week, it's a, it's a very interesting thing that in this journey to describe God and his relationship with his people and the community that is being built, we have an example in Ananias and Sapphira is what happens as a consequence when you withhold when you withhold something from God. But today, in contrast to that, we're going to see an example of someone and what happens to you when you give everything for God. In Acts chapter 6, if you would open your Bibles or your notes to there, we'll have the scripture on the screen, although today we won't read it all together because we have so many... Um, verses that we want to move through. We're going to meet a young man named Stephen. Stephen is not one of the 12 uh, disciples or now known as the apostles. Stephen was a man who somehow had been around but over the course of his life had been acknowledged already as kind of someone to be trusted, someone to be admired, someone who lived a life that became an example of God-likeness. It says here that Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Now this is a very interesting dynamic because up to this point, the only people who had done like these special things were the special people. Right? It was just Peter and John. In fact, they're really the only ones that had been mentioned so far. Now, like a dude from the, from the outside. Not somebody who traversed uh, Israel with Jesus. Kind of one of these kind of newbies. He now is said that he was able to do what Jesus said was going to happen. Jesus said what was going to happen. The things that I do, you're now supposed to do. And the things that Jesus did, we start seeing that Stephen, an example of just an everyday guy who was doing some of these things. What do you mean doing some of these things? He has the courage to actually pray that God will intervene in people's lives in very tangible ways. It's not like he was some kind of Harry Potter with uh, a stick that could conjure up some kind of spell. It's somebody who lives so humbly and trusting in the grace and in the love of God that when he invited God to be at work in somebody's life, God responded. And it's interesting, when I start to think about what kind of man that I want to be, as a, as a coach and investing my life into young men, when I think about what kind of men that I'm trying to develop, when I'm thinking about what I want their lives to be known for, this seems to be a pretty good model. 
that they would be people who are full of God's grace and power. The power of God is most often demonstrated through someone who really understands the grace of God. That it's really not about them, but it's about yielding their lives in such a way that God can use them however he chooses. The problem is opposition arose. How many of you know that it seems like every time we start to make a move forward towards God that something kind of gets in the way? We hit some kind of speed bump. We hit some kind of resistance that you need to be able to power through. What was interesting was that the people who resisted him were the original group that he came out of. The synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews from different parts of the world, and as you study and you see why, where Cyrene is at or Alexandria down in Egypt, the provinces of Asia, meaning all the way up into, up into Turkey and to other areas of the world like that, they had come back together in Jerusalem, and they began to argue with Stephen. And they couldn't stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And they secretly persuaded some other people to begin to say things about them. How many of you have ever had somebody convince somebody else to believe something about you that's not fully true? Right? Have you, I mean, we've all had that experience before. This begins to take place with Stephen. And I, want you to, I don't want you to put this in the unreal. It's not like they stood up and brought a lawsuit initially. Right? It's that little kind of backbiting and complaining that all of us have to do. That it's not even worth defending ourselves, ab uh, defending ourselves about because it doesn't ever actually settle the issue. How many times have we had somebody level accusation against us that even though you have to defend yourself in order to show that you're right, it's, we know it's a complete waste of time. It doesn't accomplish anything. But this thing keeps getting bigger. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They took Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, the, the large kind of judicial group of the... Uh, of the religious uh, community there. They produced false witnesses who gave witness and said this. This fellow never stops speaking against the building, the church, right, the temple, and against the law. What are the laws? The rules, right? Simple. So they're not saying that he's like a bad guy. He's not saying that he's cheating people. He's saying... Hey, they don't like the way we do things. It says that even this Jesus of Nazareth is going to tear down this temple and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Now, what's interesting is that Stephen's not the first one who said that. The first person who said that actually was Jesus. He said, you tear down this temple? We'll rebuild it in three days. But he wasn't talking about that temple physically. He was talking about his physical body. But he was also talking about dismantling the systems and the structures and the customs and all this stuff that is bound up in religious tradition that had no life to it.
remember last week we talked about that there is something at work that is trying to kill the church. Jesus said it himself. He said that the accuser of the brethren, the devil, the enemy, his, he desires to, 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 to do two things in two different places. He said in one place it says that he desires to bring accusation against you. That you don't measure up. That you don't, uh, that you're not who you say that you are. And his other thing is to kill the purposes and will of God as it would be planted in our own life because God invites us to participate with him. So what happens is Stephen does respond. And how he responds, and while well, I won't take the time to go through all of chapter 6 to talk about these things, what you begin to see in Stephen's kind of lecture is he points out all of the big moments in Israel's history. And in pointing it out, he points out all the times that God has been faithful to them and they have not been faithful to God. I mean, I'm guilty of it myself. There's been so many times in my life's journey, in our marriage, in our family, that God has done something supernatural, bigger than we could have asked for, and then when we are facing the same type of situation, we find ourselves with the same kind of lack of faith as if God had never done anything for us before. Stephen's not like, dogging them out he's holding a mirror because he's also saying i am like you guys this has been my story because i am a part of us but if you're going to understand you you need to be able to understand what have been the decisions and the history that have made you to think the way that you do and then he gets serious in verse excuse me in verse Chapter 7, in verse 51, he says, So you stiff-necked people. What, is, what does stiff-necked mean? Oh, they must have been over 60. No, right? Stubborn. Stubborn. I know that there's no stubborn people in here. I know that everyone here is flexible and willing to change and... I love this idea, uh, and, and uh, even though we have uh, kids in here, for some of us grown-ups, you can understand the difference. It's, it's interesting that the very thing that God used and chose as a mark in a man's physical body, just because you've been marked on the outside, he says that doesn't mean that you've been marked on the inside. Your hearts and ears, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. That's a pretty significant... You think because you bear a mark on your body that you're in. It says, but the things that you really needed to understand, that there's still a barrier from you getting it. He says, I mean, now we get serious. You are just like your ancestors. Which anybody who's been married... Whenever you tell your spouse, you are just like, you know that that does not go over very well, right? You are just like your mother. That, 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 doesn't, that, that, that doesn't go good. 
uh, guys who, if you haven't done that, can I just give you a warning from personal experience? Don't. Don't, don't say that one. Look how he defines the story of their history. You always resist. You always resist the Holy Spirit. What's another word that causes an argument between people? When you use the word, two words, always or never, right? As soon as those words come out, now, now we're fighting. Now, now we're ready to throw down a little bit. It says you always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? Even those who predicted the coming of the Messiah, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Talking about specifically about Jesus. You who received the law that was given by angels, but you've not even obeyed it, even though you've built your life around it. So when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Right? Just ground their teeth because they just couldn't wait to be able to take out action but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God look he said I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God at this they covered their ears yelling at the top of their voices they all rushed him they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him this is this is like that scene from a few good men right the truth? You want the truth? You can't handle the truth, right? Stephen's really telling them what's going on. And, and I don't know about you, but like when somebody begins to poke at a place that I'm already bruised, and what I mean by bruised is, you know how sometimes you develop a little scar tissue to protect this area so that you can convince yourself that you're right? When it starts to get exposed... It doesn't make you happy. It makes you angry. Let me put it this way. Stephen begins to tell the people who have dedicated their life to trying to obey the rules and the ways of God, and he tells them, you don't even understand your own story. If you were to ask me, I've been doing this over 30 years now. If you were to ask me what's the, one of the biggest problems in the church, it's not about holiness. It's not about that we don't love God or that we don't take care of the poor or that we don't. It begins to me with most of us don't even get our own story. We don't understand why we are the way we are. It's not about going through some psych type of psychological examination where we start to feel like we have transference issues or problems with our dad that go unresolved. It's not all of those things. But it is about the worldview that we have developed that explains me to me. I think it's what the Apostle Paul says when he writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world isn't just the worldly things. It's the world that you live in that explains you to you. The world that allows me to look into the mirror and although being frustrated 
that I don't necessarily have an Adonis physique, um, still doesn't make me confront the issue that I tend to use food as a drug. Right? I don't want to talk about that. Because when I talk about that, then that means that I have to do what? I have to change. I don't want it. I don't want to change. I don't want to start saving money. I'd rather spend money. Where does all that come from? I mean, when you really start to put yourself before the Lord and you start to look at your story, he begins to show us places that the enemy tries to keep us broken so that we never become whole. I know, I can tell you that you're not believing the right story if Jesus is not at the middle of it. If you can't look at your life and see where God has been faithful and start aligning yourself to that truth, you will always, what that's really called is resisting the Holy Spirit. Because the job of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, in the book of John 16, 13, is that he leads us and guides us into all truth. So wherever we're not responding and aligning the story of our lives to the truth of God's faithfulness and love in our life, trying to put us back together, we're the ones who are deceiving ourselves. It's our own stubbornness that is causing us the majority of our problems. See, I think there's only two responses to the truth. One is that there's a humble acknowledgement that says, you know what? As painful as that is to admit, Lord, you're right. I mean, one of the biggest challenges that Jamie and I had early on in our marriage is that we were always correcting each other. The problem is, is that we're always correcting each other with the right information, but the wrong approach. There's nobody that is vested, and it matters more, for me to become the man of God that God has originally designed for me to be than my spouse. There's also nobody who's more acutely aware that I don't measure up to that standard. So her approach to me in those areas is either going to do, it can only do one of two things. It's either going to help me make the changes that I need to make, or it's going to hurt me and make me resolve even more that I'm not going to make that kind of shift. And we have people in our life who they want God's best for us, and it's often the people that we're closest to who we reject their input. But when we begin to humbly acknowledge, there's a big shift that began to take place that I'm still working through when I begin to understand that in my life, the Holy Spirit sounds a lot like Jamie Leanne Hamilton to me. My kids are learning. 
that even though we don't have perfect information, that one of the ways that the Holy Spirit speaks to them is through the love and care and prayers of their parents. Because when we don't respond with humble acknowledgement, then there's only one other way to respond, which is self-righteous indignation. I'm right, and don't you mess with me about this anymore. We know that fear, that anger is related to fear. That's a response that comes from fear. And the fear is, for most of us, that I've actually started to become exposed, that people actually know what's going on. Now, these people who instead of having humble acknowledgement to Stephen and saying, you know what, he might be right. How did they respond? If they responded in anger, what are they really responding to? The fear that the way I've built my life and constructed it might be wrong. I come across that all the time. When people come and they want to talk about the challenges that they're having in their life, when they hit somewhere around my age, 40, 45, 50, the challenge is that they start to realize that maybe what they've built their lives around has been wrong. That the things that they were doing for the right reasons and that would produce the right results when it didn't come out the way that it is, it's a very difficult thing to be able to say, that may not have been the right way to go about this. But by this time, we're so vested into that way of thinking that the thought of having to change and admit that we might have been wrong might be too big a price to pay. And so instead, we take it out we take it out on others. The kingdom of me, one of the themes for probably the last year of language that we've been using here at Hills Church is this two, these two ideas is that if you're not in the kingdom of us or the kingdom of we, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of relationship, then we are living in the kingdom of me. And the kingdom of me always expresses itself in indignation and accusation, in anger. And in this particular case in the scripture, I want you to realize what the consequence of that kind of lifestyle is. It actually led to them taking the life of this man named Stephen. Stephen is known as the first martyr of the church. And I wish that humankind would have been in a place where he could have also been the last, but that's not been the case. Throughout the centuries, throughout the centuries, 
many people have paid the ultimate price for their faith. The book of Revelation is not just something that happens in the future, but there's, there's also a layer of the book of Revelation that gives us insight into the kingdom of us, into the kingdom of God, of what's happening right now at a dimension or a layer of eternity that while we may not live in that, it doesn't mean that that's not what's happening in heaven right now. And one of the verses comes from Revelation 12, verse 11, where people are gathered around the throne of God. And it says that these people who gave their lives for the sake of the gospel, it says the way that they um, are acknowledged for winning, that their death was not a loss, although it was to their loved ones. Their death, like Christ, is an example of the victory of the, of the gospel, of the promise of the kingdom, because ultimately they overcame them. They overcame the accuser by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus' sacrifice, and by the word of their own testimony. And this is what marks people who have journeyed with God in eternity. It says, and they did not love their lives. They were willing to give themselves. You know, um, I'm going to make a, a, a little turn for us because I think it's important for the church of the modern age to be able to also understand part of our story. More people have died for the sake of Christ in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries combined since the day of Christ. In fact, 11 Christians are killed every day around the world for the sake of their faith. The enemy loves to use anger and indignation as justification for the taking of life. Well, we celebrated Easter here in our building. Our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka, in three gatherings, over 250 people were killed by suicide bombers on Easter Sunday. The report being that they specifically targeted Easter Sunday because they knew when that would be the most people that were gathered there, that they want to see death be the story and not the resurrection. That there is, um, in, in January, there was an explosion in a church in the Philippines. 20 more people lost their lives just from gathering together, like worshiping, and in fact, just this week, a church not a whole lot bigger than ours called the International Worship Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Just on Tuesday, they interrupted a plot where this Sunday, planned for this day, a young man, for the sake of whatever his cause was, was going to also um, offer his life as a martyr as long as he took Christians with him. There are still 
I, even in this climate around the world, more than 50 countries are what we call on the danger list. That if you are a believer in these countries, it is more likely that you will find yourself in prison than in the freedom to worship. We live in a, in a hostile climate. Not to the church's political views. Not to our, for the very thing that we represent, a new kind of story. The church is still under the threat of the enemy who seeks to, as, John, as Jesus said it in John 10, who seeks to steal and to kill and to destroy. And yet there are still those who rather than have their lives taken, offer to reach people who have not yet heard. I don't know if you remember last fall, but this man by the name of John Allen Chow, kid who graduated from Oral Roberts University, and under the guise of being a Instagram adventurer, really was living out his call to be a missionary to these extremely dangerous nations. And he heard of what we call an unreached people group. An unreached people group is a group of people who've never once heard a presentation of the hope and life that is offered to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there are still places on the face of the earth where that message has not yet penetrated. And he wanted to do his part to be able to do that and knew of what is called the North Sentinel Island, about 700 miles off of Indians main, uh, India's mainland, who had never had the gospel presented there. And so he hired himself on a chartered fishing boat, a commercial fishing boat, and the fishing boat wouldn't even take him onto the island because that was against the law of India. He had a blow-up kayak, and for two days he would kayak, try to get to shore. He brought gifts, soccer balls, and, and, and offered fish and food just to try to build a relationship. And on the third day of his journey back, the fishermen never saw him make his way back to the boat. They saw him go, and they heard him call. My name is John. Jesus loves you. I am your friend. And he never made it back to the boat. In fact, the fishermen said that the last sight that they had of him was natives on the shore dragging his body across the sand. But his parents received a letter from him. And in that letter he wrote, you guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. He's not the last or the first who ever lost his life. In fact, what's so interesting was that when you look at John's life, he listed as his personal heroes people like David Livingston. Now, David Livingston is noted for being a great explorer. He's also known for being the first person to bring the gospel to the continent of Africa. Another hero of his is a gentleman by the name of Bruce Olson, who in 1960 contacted and lived with a tribal group on the border of Venezuela and didn't move despite all of the threats. You can read his story in a book called Brusco. And that for the last 
50 years has lived among them and the tribe that never had ever heard about Jesus before, now 75% of them are converted. All of them are educated. They go away. They develop the schools. In, they, they develop the, the skills that are necessary for the modern world and they come back and serve their own people. Probably the most famous in our 20th century of people who had given their lives for the sake of the gospel. These five young missionaries that were reaching out to an unreached tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. And after building a number of relational build, uh, bridges, they were all met by native warriors who ended up killing all five of these young men. And one of the men's spouses, her name is Elizabeth, continued the work and was eventually able, because of the witnesses of her husband and their friends, was able to make contact with this tribe, was able to build a relationship with them, was able to present the gospel to them where there is still a witness today. His wife, um, Elizabeth, found her husband Jim's um, journal. And on some random day in April, Jim wrote these words about God's call in his life. And he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We forget in all the things that we are asking Jesus to do for him to do for us that we are called to follow his example a life of sacrifice a life of service a life that is committed to a goal and a good that is greater than our own personal benefit I wonder when Luke, back in the first century, when he was recounting the story of his friend Stephen, if he thought back on words that he had written down that he heard Jesus say earlier, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Let me tell you what's interesting in the story of the book of Acts. In these two chapters, at the very beginning, when it talks about what this thing called the church is going to look like, there are two stories about people who lost their lives. There's people who lost their life by trying to hold back what they were unwilling to give to God. And there was a story of someone who gave everything. I think it is a warning for us even today here in South Orange County that there is a cost to following Jesus. I, I got to tell you, I don't know what I'm willing to sacrifice. But I do know that I'm trying to follow the invitation that's given to me to die to myself every day. And I don't know if you or I will ever be asked to lay down our lives like our brothers and sisters in other places throughout the world may have had to do. 
But I think something about spending time with Stephen's story this week for me has me thinking about another man's story. In the Second World War, after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, a young man from the mountains of Tennessee enlisted to defend his country. His faith prohibited him from taking up arms, so he enlisted as a conscientious objector to serve, to serve as a medic. And his beliefs caused him to face persecution from the very organization he was volunteering to be a part of. It resulted in physical beatings from um, his army unit. It included him to have to endure all types of hardships in ways that they were trying to break his spirit to be able to conform to uh, a, an example that seemed reasonable to everybody else, but unreasonable to him because it would cause him to have to compromise what he felt God's call was on his life. Ultimately, Private Desmond Doss was court-martialed and his life story was captured in a film that was out not too long ago called uh, Hacksaw Ridge. This is a scene describing the court-martial. He ends up um, going to serve in the Battle of Okinawa in a very difficult battle. And in this battle, the U.S. Armed Forces were completely overwhelmed and overrun by Japanese that were defending the island. It was a, a very nasty and costly battle. And as night began to fall, uh, the wounded U.S. soldiers were still there suffering on the island just waiting for the Japanese forces to come by and hopefully put them out of their misery. But Desmond Dawes took serious um, his personal commitment. Desmond Dawes eventually won the Congressional Medal of Honor for estimated saving a hundred men's lives over these two nights. But as I was reflecting on the story of Stephen, I also wondered. He said, when I heard about the attack that happened on our nation, I took it personal. And we don't often think of our lives in terms of the kingdom of God. But you see the trauma that is going around the people in our own lives. I don't know that I'll ever be asked in my lifetime if I would be willing to sacrifice my life for the sake of the gospel. If I do, I hope I would be courageous enough to yield because I know that there is life after life. But I don't see that on the horizon for me in the next 25 years or 30 years or 40 years, however long God has a grace for me to continue living on this earth. But what I do need to start taking personal is not just me. But it is the cause of Christ. And it is a commitment
that while the enemy is about taking lives, maybe my mind should be about saving them. And I'm not talking about yours or mine. But I could rattle off a number of people who don't even get their own story and they are on their way. I think that is important for our modern-day church. John, if you'll go to my last slide. For you to understand that following Christ requires courage and conviction and sacrifice. What we're about is convenience and service. Before the church begins to spread in Acts chapter 8, we're left with this indelible story that is reminded of every person who calls himself a Christ follower of the invitation to live like Jesus and be willing to lay down our own life. I don't know that anybody in this room is going to be asked to do that in a physical way. But I promise you, as soon as we walk out of this door, you'll encounter a waitress or somebody at the store who's going to need what you have. And I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but maybe we could have a little Desmond Dawson that says, One more, Lord. Help me get one more. 